remain standing, if you would, uh, for our reading of our the sermon text. It is Matthew 24. If you're tired, please feel free to sit down. But if, if you're able, please remain standing as an expression of uh, your reverence for God's word. Although we can be reverent sitting as well as standing. Both postures are commended to us in scripture at various places. But we're finally in Matthew 24. And we're only going to cover the first three verses today. <laughs> Pray for me. Okay. Uh, Matthew 24, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It uh, has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Give it your reverent attention as I read it. I'm actually going to back up to verse 37 of the last chapter. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple's building, the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Please be seated. Pray with me once again. Lord, we thank you for uh, the promises in your word respecting uh, the preaching of that word by a lawfully ordained man of God. Lord, I am uh, a mere sinner, but I am have been called to this ministry uh, by you through your church, would you please speak through me to your people that we might all profit uh, from what we hear, uh, that we might be drawn closer to you, our all-glorious God, and that we might <clears throat> honor you and reflect your glory back to you in our response to your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Kids, <clears throat> excuse me. Kirk, I might need some water. Where are you? Thank you. Kids, um, I have a question for you. Have you ever been asked, um, or rather, have you ever yourself ever asked an adult, like let's just say your parents are probably the adults that you might have asked uh, uh, a question, this question that I'm talking about, if you ever asked your parents a question and you thought when you were asking that question you were asking about one thing, but your mom or your dad to whom you were talking knew that you were actually asking a different question than you thought you were asking. 
Okay, that might be a little confusing, but let me give you an example. Uh, and this isn't a great example, but it'll give you some idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I actually, by the way, had a conversation not uh, not all that long ago with one of my daughters, who will not be named, and it was a it was a it was a situation like this. Uh, and my daughters are teenagers, so uh, I was being asked one question, uh, and really she didn't know it, but she was asking me another question. And so here's an example for you children, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. If you ask the question, Daddy or Mommy, isn't it unsafe to fly in one of those airplanes that goes overhead since there's nothing holding the plane up in the air? Let's just say you asked that question. Maybe you actually have asked that question. Isn't it unsafe? Because there's nothing holding the plane up in the air. Well, you're... Mom or your dad, if they, if you did ask such a question, would understand that what you were really asking was, how can an airplane fly without crashing? And by the way, they do, and they are safe to fly in. If you ever uh, end up flying, they are very safe. It's a very safe way to travel. But you were actually saying, Mom or Dad, how can an airplane fly? When you were asking, isn't it unsafe to fly an airplane since there's nothing holding it up in the air? I bring up this kind of silly example, and it's not a very, it's not the best example in the world, but I bring this up uh, because what's going on in this passage here, when the disciples ask Jesus a question, is there, they think they're asking one question. But they're really asking about two different things. When they really, when they don't realize they're asking about two different things, but they are. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus, which we'll see not this week, but in in weeks hereafter when we uh, go through the rest of Matthew 24, Jesus understands that they're asking more than one thing, and he responds accordingly. But they only think they're asking about one thing. But their question is really uh, more involved than that. And we'll see that in the second point of the sermon here. Uh, There are, uh, um, I want to give you some background, and I'm going to take a little bit more time than I normally do before I get uh, to the two points, uh, to give you this background, because it's important to the understanding of the points I'm going to make. Chapter 23, and I read just the last three verses of chapter 23 there, but Chapter 23, the entire chapter, contains Jesus' last public sermon. The last public sermon that he preached is found in Matthew 23. He was preaching to a large crowd, which included amongst it, or within it, a bunch of the religious leaders of the day. And that sermon was preached in the temple precinct, the area uh, the Temple Mount, it's sometimes called, where the temple and the various structures that comprised the greater temple area, including its courts, was found. And Jesus is preaching that sermon in Matthew 23 in the temple area, the temple precinct. And he's preaching it on Tuesday, uh, before the Tuesday before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. So it's the last week of his life. And he spent that entire sermon... Tearing into the religious leaders, 
specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are the ones that are mentioned, uh, that he repeatedly says, you know, it's, it's the woes, the, the series of woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he goes on, he says that multiple times, just tears into them. Ferocious in his condemnation of them. Why was he condemning them? He condemns them for their, as I just mentioned, their hypocrisy, their, their pride, their self-righteousness, their greed. He's condemning them for their, for prioritizing their, uh, their rabbinical traditions over God's actual laws, um, or for actually replacing God's laws with their rabbinical traditions. He chastises them for their un, for unnecessarily burdening and preying upon uh, the people under their care. He, he uh, excoriates them for their hatred of God's servants, the prophets, and for their hatred of Him, uh, the, the Lord of glory and the Messiah. And He tears into them for their murderous intentions toward Him uh, that uh, was like the murderous intentions they displayed toward the prophets of old who God had sent to them. <clears throat> Now he mentions the scribes and the Pharisees repeatedly, <clears throat> and the scribes, excuse me, the Pharisees and their scribes were, uh, were one of two factions that comprised the Sanhedrin. Most of you already know this. The Sanhedrin was that religious body that was charged with overseeing the spiritual life of the Jewish people. The Romans took care of the political, uh, life, but, but the Sanhedrin, the elders that comprised that body, took care of the spiritual, um, issues regarding the, the, the Jewish people. And the other faction, by the way, was the Sadducees. And the Sanhedrin met in and ruled from Israel's capital, Jerusalem, in which Jesus is now standing and uh, uh, here uh, as he's talking to his disciples. Uh, excuse me, as he was preaching in, in chapter 23. So when Jesus at the conclusion of this sermon, uh, devoted to denunciating the scribes and the Pharisees for their dereliction of duty, when he says there in verse 20, uh, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the uh, prophets and stones those who are sent to, to her, he is clearly referring there, when he says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's still referring to the same individuals that he was uh, condemning in the whole preceding sermon, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees, along with their accomplices, the Sadducees, who didn't get mentioned but were certainly included in his comments or in his thinking when he is condemning them. And he says, he solemnly warns them in verse 38 of chapter 23, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now this statement is a clear reference by our Lord to the decision that he was making as the God-man at this very point in time as he's speaking, although it was actually made in eternity past, but he is, he is as the God-man making the decision right now, to do it right now, to abandon. It's a clear reference to his decision to abandon not only the structure that is before him, that in which he and the Father and the Spirit had dwelt specially for centuries, but also his decision to covenantally abandon, I'm going to use that language, covenantally abandon the Jewish nation of that day, which for so long 
had looked to that structure, the temple, as their guarantee that God was graciously disposed toward them and that he remained their God. Jesus is saying in verse 38, I'm abandoning you. And when Jesus, the messianic descendant of David for whom the Jews had been waiting for centuries, when Jesus departs, which we read of in 24.1, when he departs from the temple, the Jerusalem temple and its grounds, he will never ever return until he comes in judgment. He, as Old Testament Israel's messenger of the covenant, Malachi 3.1, that we looked at in Sunday school, he, as the Lord of the covenant, was formally abandoning not only the idolatrous, unbelieving shepherds of his Old Testament people for their long-standing infidelity to him. Yes, he was abandoning them, but he was also abandoning every physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, who had been imitating their godless spiritual leaders and their treacherous, unbelieving ways. He was abandoning the whole lot of them. And this was his formal decision to do so, uh, and a statement of his decision to do so. Regarding this abandonment of covenant-breaking Israel by our Lord, Marcellus Kick, in his book entitled The Eschatology of Victory, writes this, quote, This was truly the sentence of death. God, as it were, forsook the temple which had once been his dwelling place, and by his departure the temple was left a sepulcher. It would henceforth be a blot upon the earth and fit only to be destroyed. Christ no longer calls it my house, as he did in Matthew 21.13, but your house, which is left to you desolate. The temple thus was forsaken by the living God. No longer would he dwell in the Holy of Holies of the earthly temple. The house of God was now the house of desolation. And being the house of desolation, its destruction was inevitable. Unquote. And the fact that Jesus prophesies the temple's obliteration in the very next recorded scene which is Matthew 24, that we're starting on now. The fact that uh, Jesus prophesies the temple's destruction is no accident, that it, that it is found right next to that statement in uh, the end of Matthew 23, 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Matthew, by putting these two texts together in his gospel, by deliberately placing uh, these two texts together, uh, is compelling us, the reader, to associate the temple's then future, it hadn't happened yet, destruction with Jesus' covenantal abandonment of the unbelieving Jewish nation of that day. He wants us to see it. 
Now this leads me to my two points. That was all by way of introduction. So here are the two points from the text. First, found in the first two verses is this. Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus' announcement of the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And then we are going to secondly look at the disciples' question regarding the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temples. But first, the announcement itself. The sermon uh, of recorded Matthew 23, as I already mentioned, was delivered in the temple precinct. The disciples were present for that sermon uh, and are undoubtedly, and it's just recently concluded, and they are undoubtedly shocked by what by Jesus' assertion that he has just made that the glorious temple uh, would soon be desolate, or was already desolate. And they are no doubt staring in disbelief at the beauty and the splendor of their surroundings as just after Jesus has made this statement. And they are staring at this, all the things that they see in the gilded statues and the gilded temple itself and the marble that's everywhere and the pillars and the, 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 the beauty, beauty of it. I, uh, you might Google sometime um, Herod's temple and see a, uh, a mock-up of it, uh, a rendering of it that is probably a pretty good guess as to what it looked like, uh, uh, fairly close. It, it, was, uh, it was magnificent. Um, the, the Temple Mount and the structure surrounding it. At any rate, they're staring at this, and then almost as if to say, God surely would not allow such a terrible thing to happen to such magnificent structures. They don't say that. What they actually say to Jesus and exclaim to Jesus, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And what they're really saying is, God isn't going to let this be destroyed, right? Well, in response to their implied unwillingness to believe what Jesus had just told them about the temple being desolate, Jesus makes the following declaration found in verse 2. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Not one stone. All the magnificent structures that dotted the temple mount, the soaring gilded temple itself that had gold uh, all over it, the other lesser structures on the premises that serviced the the temple and the needs of the people as they worshipped. The altar, the great bronze sea that was in front of the temple, the pillared porticos that surrounded the entire complex, the various stone-covered courtyards uh, that were layered around the temple, uh, progressed outward from the temple itself, the great walls that surrounded the entire complex, all would be utterly flattened, Jesus says. And he was, of course, implying, uh, they didn't, he didn't say it right there, but the Romans were going to do that. Some 40 years after Jesus spoke these words in 70 AD. And that's what he's talking about very clearly right there in verse 2. And what was going to be true of the Temple Mount 
after the Romans were finished with it, was also going to be true of Jerusalem itself. History tells us and records that the entire city of Jerusalem was razed to the ground, plowed up, and sown with salt, which is a way of demonstrating uh, cursing and disgust by its, uh, by its um, conquerors, the Romans. The city's destruction... The city of Jerusalem's destruction was so complete that the first century Jewish historian Josephus said this of the city after the Romans were done with it. There was left nothing to make those who had come there believe it had ever been inhabited. Well, what happened in 70 AD when the Romans did their thing? was a consequence of something. It was a consequence of centuries upon centuries of persistent and flagrant spiritual infidelity by the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob against the God of their forefathers. That's what chapter 23 was all about. What can we learn from this um, prophecy which was fulfilled in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem and the carrying away of the Jews into the lands, dispersion of them in, throughout the, uh, in, uh, the Roman world. A couple things. First of all, we need to understand, because um, I said centuries and centuries a moment ago, that God is a God who is willing to put up with a lot from his covenant people, from his church. Talking about bad things now that emanate from his church. God is a very patient God with his covenant people, those who claim his allegiance to him and own his name in their baptism. But, God's patience and his willingness to forbear with the rebellion of his covenant people. When they rebel, it has its limits. Its limits were reached for the Old Testament Jewish church in 70 AD. Actually, its limits were reached when Jesus spoke these words. It took 40 years for the results of that abandonment to be fully known. But God had had it up to here with that church, with that, that uh, church with its ethnically dominated Jewish uh, component. Folks, we must not try God's patience. We must not test the Lord by seeing how close we can get to the fire without getting burned, whatever that fire might look like. You don't play games with God. <clears throat> Another thing we can learn from this passage and uh, what it predicts, which hasn't hadn't taken place yet, but what it predicted and uh, 
is that the judicial wrath that God will pour out on unbelieving members of the covenant community will be worse than that which he will pour out upon unbelievers who have never been in covenant with him at all. You say, where do you get that? Well, it's implied here, but it's directly stated by Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 20 through 24. Turn with me there. Matthew 11. Listen to what we read here. And notice the, uh, the contrast. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Remember, these are, these are covenant members, external members of the covenant of the church who were in covenant externally at least with, uh, with the Lord, uh, with Jehovah. And so here's what Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be ex- uh, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable, note that, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The Gentiles are not going to suffer as badly as you covenant-breaking Jews are. And that applies to us today, who are in the church but don't love Jesus, aren't trusting in Jesus as our Savior and our King. If there's anybody here today or listening to me at home that's playing games with God, by pretending to be a follower of Jesus when in fact your life indicates that you are not. Stop it. God has every right to strike each one of us dead and, and uh, put us under his eternal wrath in hell. And you will certainly experience that unless you repent of your idolatry and self-love and rebellion and turn to God through Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus alone to save you from your sins uh, and the penalty that your sins deserve. Flee to Christ before it is too late. Secondly, we've looked at Jesus' announcement of the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple. But now... In our remaining time, let's look at the disciples' question regarding the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple. The disciples were undoubtedly horrified by what Jesus said regarding the temple back in uh, the end of his sermon there in verse uh, 38 of, uh, of chapter 23. They just they, they couldn't fathom what he was saying. The destruction of this temple that was before them, 
was one of the, one of the grandest structures in the ancient world and the center of the true God's worship for over 1,000 years at this point in time. The destruction of that building was almost unthinkable to first century Jews such as the disciples. For one thing, they would have reasoned to themselves, including probably the disciples. For one thing, the temple is the symbol of God's favor toward his chosen ones, the descendants of Abraham. And that's us. That's us Jews. So that's one of the things that would have certainly passed across the disciples' mind, probably. And certainly, if not the disciples' mind, the other Jews in the city and in in Judea of that day. But secondly, they would have assured themselves, God has promised in the Old Testament scriptures that his temple will remain forever. So we don't have anything to worry about. What promises, where is those promises found? Well, I'll only look at one place, but there are a few places. One of which is Psalm 78, verses 68 and 69 but the one I wanted to look at uh, just as representatively is 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 13, where Solomon, uh, when, the, when the ark, uh, when the Shekinah glory filled the temple at the dedication of the temple of, that Solomon built, Solomon says in verse 13, I have surely built thee, speaking to God now in prayer, I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. And a Jew of that day, including the disciples, might have gone, well, well, it's forever. Right? That's a promise. No, it's a statement, actually. Uh, I've built a place that you can dwell for, for as long as time lasts, but that's not a guarantee that he would dwell there forever. Uh, but but a, a Jew, uh, just kind of casually reading that passage or hearing that passage preached in, in the synagogues would have gone, oh, well, well, the Lord's going to be with... He can't let his, his house be torn down. Certainly not. And the disciples, as Jews, probably thought one or both of those thoughts. Well, after Jesus makes the statement, probably in stunned silence, the twelve follow their master out of the temple grounds, precinct out of the city's eastern gate, across the Kidron Valley, and up the side of the Mount of Olives, whose summit overlooked the Temple Mount to the Temple Mount's east. And they get up there, and after finding a place to sit and rest near the top, somewhere near the top, uh, probably a spot that allowed them to see the temple off in the distance to the west, the disciples finally get up the courage to ask Jesus a question related to his recent ominous prediction about the desolation of the temple. And that's their question in verse 3, where they say, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Understanding the wording of this question that I just read to you 
is key to understanding Jesus' response to it, which comes in the remainder of this chapter and even all the way through chapter 25, actually. The whole uh, Olivet Discourse, as it is known. And understanding the question is key to understanding Jesus' answer. Now, the disciples thought that they were only asking about one upcoming event when they asked this question in verse 3, that's recorded in verse 3. They thought, they thought that they were only asking about the temples, the physical temples destruction when they asked this question in verse 3, recorded in verse 3. But when we compare Matthew's version of their question with Mark and Luke's, we're not going to take the time to do that, um, but when we compare Matthew's version of their question with Mark and Luke's version of their question asked on the same occasion, it is clear that the disciples wanted to know when the destruction that Jesus had spoken of would occur, when there would be no stone left upon another, and what would be the sign that will indicate when that destruction of the temple is imminent? They want to know when, and what's the sign that will help us to see when the temple will be destroyed. That's what they thought they were asking by their question. But in order to understand why Jesus answers them the way he does in the subsequent two chapters... we need to know what the disciples were assuming by their question. So there's the question itself, and then Jesus gives an answer, but the disciples are making some major assumptions by their question. So here's what's going on, okay? According to Matthew's wording that we read here, of their question, the disciples believed, here's what they believed, here's what they assumed, in other words. Two things. They assumed that the temple's destruction was surely going to occur only at the end of the age. The end of the world. They assumed that. They believed that. The temple's not going to be destroyed until the end of human history. Their question also indicates that the end, they believed that the end of the age would be brought about by Jesus' second coming, his bodily return to earth. That's what the disciples believed as they were asking their question. Now, their assumption that the end of the age would be brought about by Jesus' victorious bodily return to earth as judge, that assumption was correct. It was correct. And they undoubtedly came to that conclusion that uh, the end of the age would be brought about by Jesus' return and glory. They came to that conclusion on account of Jesus' own teaching in such places as Matthew 13 and Matthew 16. Let's turn there briefly. Turn back to Matthew 13. And you all know the parable of the wheat and the tares, and I'm not going to read verses 24 through 30, which is the parable itself. Uh, but I'm going to read Jesus' exposition of the parable, which comes in verses 36 through 43. I'll only read through 40, well, I'll read through 43. But listen to this, and because the disciples heard Jesus teach what we're about to read. 
and other texts as well, which I'm going to get to at least one other one here in a moment in Matthew 16. But listen to this one, first of all. Matthew uh, 13, 36. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So here's the explanation of the wheat and the tares. And he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. They knew that to be the designation that Jesus had for himself as the Messiah from Daniel 7. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. Same exact phrase, by the way, that's found in Matthew 24. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, Jesus, will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That is one of the places where they would have understood and come to the conclusion the end of the age is coming when Jesus returns with his holy angels to bring judgment. Another passage that they would have heard uh, is Matthew 16, verse 27, uh, where Jesus says, speaking to the apostles, the disciples rather, uh, or the disciples are at least present for this conversation. Uh, no, actually, it's, it's, it's to them. He says in verse 27, For the Son of Man, again, Jesus himself, and they knew that. For the Son of Man is going to come, there it is, in the glory of his Father with his angels, same teaching as that we read in Matthew 20, uh, 13, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds, implying that's the judgment. Okay? So the disciples picked up on this. And they rightly got it. They got the point. But, because the temple's destruction would obviously occur as a result of divine judgment, the, the, the destruction that Jesus had just predicted in, in, in verse 2 of Matthew 24, because the temple's destruction would obviously occur as the result of divine judgment, and because the meeting out of judgment would be a central element of Jesus' second coming, as we just read, the disciples wrongly concluded that the temple's destruction, an act of judgment by God, would occur whenever Jesus returned bodily in glory with the angels to judge the living and the dead. That assumption was erroneous. It was wrong. Now, the reason it is important to know that these are the assumptions, one is right, one is wrong, that the disciples are making when they ask their question in verse 3, is because knowing the assumptions they're making explains why Jesus answers the way he answers in the remainder of the discourse. 
That's key. You got to understand what they want, what they, what they're actually asking. This gets back to you children, by the way. When I said, when you ask one question, but the person who you're asking it of realizes you're really asking another question, that's what was going on here with Jesus. They were, the disciples were asking one question that they thought they understood, and Jesus was like, understood that they were actually asking something else, or at least something in addition to the question they thought they were asking. Sorry if that was confusing. So, Jesus in his answer to them, that we're going to look at in subsequent weeks, he distinguishes between, in, in Matthew 24 and 25, but particularly 24, he distinguishes between the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and the sign that will immediately precede uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. He distinguishes between these things on the one hand, and his bodily return to earth at the end of the ages and the signs that will immediately precede that day of judgment on the other hand. So Jesus covers two topics. They thought they were only asking about one, but they were really asking about two. And Jesus covers both topics in his answer. Remember that as we proceed through Matthew 24 in coming weeks ahead. Jesus will answer their question about the end of the age. We'll, we'll see this next week, actually, if, uh, the next time we're in, in Matthew. Hopefully it'll be next week. Uh, he, he answers that question, uh, interestingly, by talking uh, about what are not the signs that the destruction of, uh, or that the end of the world is at hand. Uh, which we'll see, I, hopefully, Lord willing, next time. So, this is all by way of introduction to the Olivet Discourse. I hope uh, it was profitable. I hope it will be profitable to your understanding and mine in coming weeks as we look at this very interesting and much debated chapter of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Um, Lord, we thank you for the fact that your word is um, its complex, it's wonderful, it's at times uh, a little cryptic, especially in prophetic portions uh, of it. But we thank you, Lord, that uh, as we are careful uh, to compare Scripture with Scripture and and uh, pray uh, and study, that we can grasp um, much of what uh, is being said with your enabling. We do pray that you would help us in coming weeks as we, uh, if you give us opportunity to look at the remainder of uh, the Olivet Discourse, we pray that you would bless our understanding of it, that you would help me to properly um, and faithfully expound it for your people, and that we would derive much benefit from it, that we might better serve you. We do ask, Lord, that if there's anyone who is listening to me who has never understood that Jesus alone can save him or her from the wrath uh, 
your wrath in hell that they deserve, that we all deserve, would you please give such a one saving faith, a new heart and saving faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as his only hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.